Hi, I'm Cornell. I'm Glenroy. And I'm Kareem, and welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where three hair-whipping, heel-strutting Jamaican queens talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. Uh, that never bad. That never bad at all. <laughs> Harmonization and control, so we can start a choir after this. <laughs> oh, so we're in week 345 of COVID. Mm-hmm. How are we doing? I think them obi I mean. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, so I woke up this morning with my eye um, weird. So I had this weird ass dream, right? And my eye was hurting, but I was blinking. And every time I blinked, um, and I opened my eyes, something new or magical happened, right? I saw something different. So when my eyes, like in the dream, my eye was hurting, which is why I was blinking. Did you know I woke up to my eye hurting because apparently there's like some dust particles stuck in there and I've been rinsing it with water, with saline eye wash and all of that and it stills like, ugh, so not has me, like because it's, I guess, trying to rid itself of the foreign body, like my nose is running and it's just, I'm a mess over here. It's just... And I have to host like a virtual dinner, which I'm really excited about later. But that should be interesting. So I mean, never get virtual dinner. What are Sorry, but I have to interrupt. Why do you never get invited to the virtual dinner? No, that's not my event. Somebody was um, is using it as kind of like a give back to some small business. So she's getting all her friends to kind of cash mob the business, order stuff from the restaurant. And then she's hosting kind of like a virtual dinner through Zoom. And then she asked me to kind of like host like a table, if that makes sense. So when she, there's like a big room and she's going to break them up into groups. So she kind of asked me to lead the activities for that one particular group. No, it's not my thing. I'm not ready to do my thing yet. When my girl, please, when my thing, I'm gonna do, I think we should do one for fish tea. Just put it That would be so nice. The first fish tea Friday can be like a virtual something. I'm saying, I'm just saying. I mean, well, me not going to cook the fish tea, but you know, somebody can do it. No, man, what else did I got <laughs> So wait, is, is something like actually lodged in your eye? So the last time it happened, I had to like go to the doctor, to my, my, to my um, ophthalmologist. And he, the way he explained it is that I have kind of like some dust. He couldn't see it, but he knew there was a dust particle there. So he kind of numbed my eye for me so he could try to remove it. And he just kind of like flooded my eye with saline wash. So after a while, it did come out. But I guess I'm not doing a good job with the flooding, with the, with the washing of the eye, because it's not, it's still kind of lodged in there. Like you can't see it, but you just know it's there. That sounds very uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable because my eye is just like literally running like me I cry are you showing a pink eye out? no I'm gonna catch pink mm-hmm. already you know you can't catch it more than once right? I'm gonna never know that <laughs> <laughs> what about you Cornell? Uh, I've been good I mean nothing much to report um, I don't have any immediate cooking stories um, most of what we've been having this past week have been leftovers although I think we're just supposed to be trying um, what is it, rundown to tonight? So, I mean, we'll see how that turns out. Um, I mean, generally, I've just been thinking a lot about finances and spending money and shit and disposable income and lack of disposable income and activities. But, I mean, yeah, I don't really have much to report. I'm just, like, sad 
I won't be able to participate in the activities that I signed up to or committed to during the summer because nothing's happening. So, yeah. What about you? Oh, sorry. I mean, I got to know for true one part now. If I were to put the money. That wouldn't bad. Um, so, uh, still house. So, as I was telling you guys offline, I'm actually house hunting because living in Kingston is expensive and it's hard to find a place that is affordable and decent. You know, I've, I've been doing that for like over a month now. Um, and yeah, my kind of is at yell, so I can't live certain on certain place. Sorry, not sorry. So, um, but also, I, I, I'm just, I like having certain comforts. Um, but notwithstanding, notwithstanding that, I have no problem still living with my mom. But you know, sometimes you want your own room to throw your weight around. Yeah? Yeah. So, but if I hope say, some of the things that I put in the pipeline work so that it's resolved as soon as possible. I mean, only good thing for me in this COVID crisis is that I'm not spending as much. So Robert is my driver who takes me everywhere. Oh, well, one off, but she's the main one. And so Robert builds us at the end of the month. Um, cause he prefer when he's getting big lump sum. But Robert Bill was less than ten grand a month. Yeah, I'ma feel so good. I'ma feel so good. <laughs> Robert, look for me. I'm showing the bill. I'ma say, oh, and him laugh. Cause he knows my bill comes up some bad twenty thousand grand when Robert feel when Robert idle. So yeah, I'ma feel. I good. mean, so I mean, I don't mean to to co-opt your your story, but that's kind of what I was getting at. Like the things that we spend money on monthly but we don't necessarily notice and now we don't get to do those things anymore but like has has like the taxi been the only area that you found that you're like saving money because I find for me like there is money in my account now that isn't typically there at this point because I would be spending it on other things and it's just like huh yes I'm also yes I'm also not eating out so like if Mm. you uh, we're living and working in Kingston, and if you're trying to be a socialite, maybe really, I try to be a socialite. Maybe I have to show the girls and see if I'm there. So, oh, I have another update. Well, we can't only mention it in certain terms. But yeah, so yeah, for sure, but you go to certain space. So you go to a Chilitos on a Monday, you know, you go to a, a what, Regency on a Thursday, you might go to Haven one day or a pub the next day. I'm kind of also tend to go to more like mid level to expensive restaurants. So like, so I'm going to be generally between once or twice a week, but I don't know Monday when that waste, but still have it. So yeah, the bank account will be <laughs> no lie. But something really amazing happened last Sunday, um, which was, I made it send another link to it, but it was really planned last minute. So some members of the community all came together and we had this very interesting discussion about the notions of who, whether or not the vulgar girls, um, and then we, we ended up agreeing that vulgar is a relative term, but whether or not the girls who are vulgar and out there make it bad for the rest of us in the community. I mean, I had some strong opinions to the contrary, and I didn't kind of lose, lose it at one moment. But it was, very, it, was, it was a very good discussion, and for me, it was kind of, kind of great to see that as a community, we were coming together and creating space for, for us to have these very important conversations that we weren't necessarily having as a collective before. And they're doing one again this week, um, talking about a different topic. So it looks like it's going to become a regular fixture. And I like when I see our community doing that in the Jamaican context because it's necessary movement building work. So mm-hmm. yeah, trouble face tonight again. Um, I'll say walk one, I'll say two pieces, you know, so. but they did nice. Maybe call it the first Matic Conference of Jamaica. <laughs> that sounds great. Want to be a part of her? I mean, I'd like to see what it's about. Yeah, me send on the link, but he said on the link could never jump out and get busy. That's um, true. I never see till afterwards, Mister O. Yeah, yeah, you girl. 
But you can realize that like answer message um as readily as it said. I'm trying to do better. Oh, no. Yeah, but notice yo. I really notice yo. Like if me not ask you, as a girl, she not always answer as we send the message. I mean, I say for that all the time, but yeah, but realize I'm not at you when we really want you. <laughs> First one, right? Hey, I I know you want to loop in our guests in 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 a second, but I just wanted to ask really quickly in terms of the housing market, are you finding things? are easier or harder now with COVID? Because I'm wondering if prices are lower now because the demand level might have been might have shifted. Well, maybe it's a matter of what I am, the kinds of properties I am looking at. I think they're pretty much the same. However, one thing I kind of noticed recently more, in the last maybe week or so, I've seen a, um, more cheaper properties coming up. I don't know if it's just a blip or that it's gonna become a trade, but yeah, I've seen more properties coming up now that are slightly a, bit, a little bit more cheaper. But I don't know if that's just a good luck thing or it's actually COVID. But there are people who are kind of foreseeing that as people leave, go back, like students going back to the rural areas where they're from, for example, that more rental properties might become available. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of what we're doing today, we're having a very much needed conversation about being at the intersections of being queer and being a part of our racial minority. Um, um, we often have this conversation as a conversation about being black and queer at the same time. But based on who is our guest, I want to kind of broaden our language around us. So we're talking about being queer and being a person of color. The popular term on the internet is to be a queer trans intersex um, person of color, so QTPOC. Um, and so with us, we have a very special friend of mine who um, has some very great opinions on this topic. Um, Alex Leon, who is an activist and advocate based in the UK, but um, he's from Australia. He's a person of color. And I definitely wanted him to have this like very layered conversation with us. So welcome, Alex. Welcome to Fish Tea. I think you're probably the first, well, no, he's not the first non-Jamaica. That's not true. But probably the first person that's not from the Caribbean. No. Descent. <laughs> Wait, who is not from the Caribbean? Who is not from the from, from the Caribbean? No, your friend wasn't one of your friends, um, Cornell, that was based in the UK. But he I had mean, parents. That's why I said Caribbean. I ended up saying not Caribbean descent because he didn't grow up in the in Jamaica. No. Right. So okay. Yeah, not Caribbean descent. Yeah. But I mean, he didn't meet of Caribbean descent though. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, so oh. Alex, you the first person not of Caribbean descent. And I'm gotcha. Welcome, Alex. An honor. What an honor. I didn't realize that I was coming in at such a momentous, like <laughs> such a uh, title, but I will try and uh, wield this power <laughs> <laughs> in the right ways. I mean, I remember when we were talking about um, going on to the podcast ages ago, I, I remember, do you remember this glamour that I said to her? Like, you know what? Cause I, I'm a listener. I listen to this. And I was like, you know, I really, I would really like to come on, but I have to admit that I don't understand about 30% of what is being said. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you were like, yeah, well, you can still come on. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad to have you. And um, you can just introduce yourself to our sophisticates. Tell them about um, who you are, a little bit about your work and um, your yes. Ethnic to kind of locate yourself in the conversation and then we can start. Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, as you said, my name is Alex Leon. I'm an activist. It's always a bit awkward to self-identify as an activist, but I've kind of given up trying to take that name away. So I'm kind of an activist, 
uh, a writer. I work for uh, Kaleidoscope Trust, which is an international LGBT human rights organization. So a lot of uh, my work, and especially my work with, with Glenroy, uh, is around uh, challenging um, challenging governments and countries that are trying to dismiss or not uphold LGBT human rights. Um, that's a big part of the work that I do and, think, and something that I'm extremely passionate about. The other kind of section or kind of um, area of work that I um, have a lot of passion for and that I kind of do a lot of is, I guess, yeah, trying to have this conversation around the intersection between, a per between being a person of color and being queer. It's something which I think uh, very recently in countries like the UK and Australia, which is where I was born and where I grew up, um, is just starting to happen um, in a really kind of important and uh, impactful way. But it's a conversation that has a lot of um, a lot of nuance. And I think we're still in the process of figuring out all of that nuance and making sure that the conversations that we have are as inclusive as possible. So yeah, I do a lot of um, a lot of writing. I have a YouTube channel, which is um, kind of dedicated to topics that affect queer people of color. Um, and it's just something that I'm really passionate about and something that I that I care a lot about and I talk a lot about. And I guess that's sort of in a way why I'm here because we're having a discussion around this topic, I believe. And we're really glad to have you. Um, so just for the purposes of our listeners, um, your ethnic background, so you're both Australian and... Or... Yeah, so I mean, it's, <laughs> it's always a bit complicated, right? So I was born in Australia. Um, my mom is white British and my dad is Sri Lankan, so he's Asian, but he's Tamil, so he's very, very dark-skinned uh, South Asian. And so I'm sort of mixed race, person of color, brown. I mean, there are so many different terms that get used to describe me, but I think broadly speaking, I would say that I'm mixed, which actually is a term which sort of means different things in different contexts, but it sort of just works for me. Right. Um, and I guess before we jump in, I think, I think here is useful to like make an admission, because I remember early on we had this conversation some um, months ago, or last year, actually, when I was saying to you that when I first met you, I kind of placed you as white. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, then I realized, I was like, no, wait, look at, when I looked at you and then I looked at the other white people in the room, well, in my mind, the other white people in the room, I was like, he looks different. <laughs> but then what that kind of brought up in my head and then later when I was doing my, like, my own analysis, I, um, about whether or not intersectional theory kind of maps onto Caribbean realities in a certain kind of way, is that how we understand whiteness and blackness is slightly different in the Caribbean. And so somebody like you, Alex, would either be placed as white or very high brown, so basically near white, and we kind of get all those kinds of privileges that would be ascribed to a white person in the Jamaican context. And so for me, because of that, it was hard to make that kind of distinction at first until, you know, kind of, got to understand you a bit more and, and, and your own work and your own activism. Um, so yeah, that's just me kind of admitting my full part there. But that could be an interesting kind of understanding of how with your own identity as somebody who is biracial or mixed, um, whichever term you think is more appropriate, um, how has that experience been, you know, growing up in Australia and having, you know, and being that person? Yeah, so I mean, I, I remember us having that conversation and you, um, saying to me, you know, in Jamaica, like you would be considered a high brown or, or white. And it really, I remember at the time I found it really fascinating because this is a, this is a, a topic and an experience that I've had many times. I was trying to explain to someone, I'll get to growing up in Australia in a second, but I was just was so, I was just reminded of that conversation and being mixed race or being biracial often means that your experience of racism is like particularly contextual and particularly contextually bound 
because people don't people read you as what they think you are not what you actually are so what that means is that you sometimes walk into situations where you are either you know benefiting from a privilege or um being discriminated against for what someone perceives you to be and if you travel you know the work that that we've done together you know is often international working in international lgbt rights sometimes i go to a country and I have to grapple with almost immediately the fact that I might be experiencing racism in that country based on someone profiling me as an ethnic minority that I've never heard of or, of a, or a racial group that I've never heard of. And that's kind of, I think a lot of the conversations that we have about mixed race people or biracial people are conversations about privilege. And I think they should be uh, conversations primarily about privilege because if you're mixed race or biracial, and if half of that mix or some of that mix is white, you do have a proximity to privilege, right? And you do benefit from that whiteness. And I can put my hands up and say that that's 100% correct. But one of the things that I think people often miss in this conversation is that you still experience racism, right? You still experience um, people discriminating against you because they can't, they know that you're not white or they know that you're not part of a dominant racial group. And sometimes that, the nuance of that experience is lost. As for growing up in Australia, I mean, I don't know if any of you have had the chance to go. Australia is, for the most part, a like blindingly white place. Um, it's sort of hyper Anglo-Saxon. And the part of Sydney that I grew up in, again, was super duper white. So for me, growing up as a kind of ambiguously brown child and then adolescent, it was, it was a constant experience of othering because to a lot of the people that I grew up with, I was one of the few people of color or brown or black people that they knew. Um, and so even though I was half white, it didn't really feel that way, right? It's like I couldn't, I couldn't grasp onto my whiteness and, and kind of see my proximity to privilege there because to all the, all the white people in my life, I wasn't white. And there was no conversation about the fact that I was half white or if that was even um, something that they would consider. So I think growing up in a country like Australia or maybe, you know, in certain parts of the UK, um, it can be tough being mixed. It can be tough being um someone who's sort of ambiguously brown because you don't really have a community right um and i would imagine although i don't know because i've not been to jamaica uh, i don't know what the kind of um dem demographics look like sort of from an ethnic or racial line um i would be curious to know what your thoughts are or whether there is a group of people that you know whether it's the high brown or whether it's mixed race or whatever who are kind of this this in-between category right and I'd be curious to know whether those people feel like they have a community behind them. That's an interesting thought. Um, Cornell, Kareem, do you guys have any particular opinions on that? I mean, I don't remember, outside of, I guess, being seen as more attractive, I don't necessarily remember um, my complexion having like any added privileges. At least, at least maybe then I just wasn't so keen to it. But I do remember sharing with others that I, I remember, like, express. I remember describing myself on my um, on the yellow pages on my profile that I was using to um, get with other men and so on as kind of like not trying to appear like too dark because I knew that then people don't necessarily would find you attractive. So I guess in this sense, I don't know if that's privilege or that's just um, I don't know what what term to ascribe to it. But I do remember making sure to say that I was like medium brown or caramel skinned or. Um, something of that sort, because I knew that that played a factor in whether or not you'd be able to score like a potential partner. I'm not sure if that's the same case now, Leroy, um, because then like even now my complexion has totally different implications for me now that I live in the United States. 
Sure. No, I was just going to say that I think regardless of where we are, um, skin tone has a certain kind of currency. And while Alex was talking, I was reminded of this interaction I had with um, this guy when I went to New Orleans who was around my complexion or darker. And, you know, we were kind of flirting at the time or whatever, but then he was saying, oh, you know, he doesn't usually, he's not really usually interested into guys with my complexion. He usually goes for fair skin guys. So it's also interesting to think about how that manifests within black communities even. The other part of it is because of Jamaica's particular demographic in terms of race, I don't know if we would deal with the same kind of dynamics necessarily in terms of um, like people who might who are either considered mixed race in the same kind of way. Um, I mean, for the most part, we were around people that generally looked like like we did. But to go back very briefly to something that Alex said at the beginning when he was talking about this idea of the concept of brownness, that's also that was interesting for me to think about, particularly where I'm at in Toronto, which they apparently say is the most multicultural city or something in the world. But so in Jamaica, brown means someone who is black, but like above, you know, probably fairer skin. In the U.S., depending on where you are, brown, I think typically refers to uh, like Latinx people, whereas in Canada, brown means South Asian. So, I mean, to Alex's point, it means it can mean any number of things depending on where you are in, in a given context. So I thought that, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, Um to kind of, kind of add some, some other dimensions to the conversation, I've had this um, kind of theory that within the Jamaican context, we could make a strong argument that brown is its own race. Um, in so much that when we talk about race, we're talking about social constructions upon um, eth- ethnic identities and, and, and other types of um, biological and, so- and social realities, that brown emerges as something distinct from black and white, um, but they're not so distinct because it exists on a, but not completely distinct and discrete because it exists along this color continuum. So for me, Jamaica is marked by colorism, obviously. And so like Kareem said, um, if you, the browner you are, you, you have a certain level of currency. And if we, we have this age old conversation about what our beauty queens look like, our Miss, Wer- Miss Jamaica world and Miss Universe Jamaicas, they are predominantly um, what Americans would call light skin, right? But in, in the Jamaican context, brown, being brown means something. Of course, there's brown, then there's copper color, and then there's chrome, and they all have different things. So chrome is the person that bleaches their skin, and then copper color is not necessarily brown, kind of, we, we would say reddish. Um, and I think that implicates persons who are um, of South Asian descent um, a little, so not quite. But then there are people who are white skin, who are brown, or brown tends to be people who are mixed with white, and, but are on the much more lighter side. And therefore, there are all these kind of implications that come with you being considered brown. So it's assumed that you come from a certain family, that you have a certain amount of wealth, that you went to a certain, amount, a certain school. So there's these kind of social expectations that come with brownness as distinct from people who do have, a, who are not, a, who are light skinned but don't kind of fit in that category of brown, you know? So, I mean, it's something, it's an idea that I'm still working through based on some stuff, some academic articles that I've read. But I think how we understand brown in the Jamaican context is very distinct and almost distinct enough to call itself, to be even considered as a different racial category socially, even though we don't, I mean, legally recognize it as that. Sorry, it also speaks to this idea broadly that like, 
you know, we, we all know this, but we sometimes forget that race is a social construct, right? So to give you a kind of counterpoint, it's not really a counterpoint, it's more like a complementary point. I grew up thinking that I was half black because my dad is very, very dark skinned. And despite being Asian, South Asian, was read by, in Australia, was read as black because, I mean, he is black. Like he's very, very dark skinned, right? And so in an Australian context where we don't have um, a very, we don't have a history of immigration from Africa or the Caribbean, um, and there is a very small percentage of the population that could trace their ethnic uh, roots back to Africa, people would see my dad and be like, oh, he's black. You know, he's very dark skinned. And they wouldn't see his hair because he doesn't, he, he was bald. And that was just kind of it, right? And so I grew up thinking, oh, my dad is black because he began to self-identify as black based on what everyone was constantly telling him. He knew he was Asian. In his country, he wouldn't consider himself black, but he was like, okay, I guess I'm black in Australia. And then I got to a certain point in my either adolescence or kind of early adulthood where I realized that actually the, the concept of blackness in the vast majority of the world did not align with where my dad was from, right? My dad you know, in the UK, there is no, there is no, there is no reality in which my dad is black. He is Asian, right? He's South Asian. There is a big South Asian uh, ethnic group in this country, and so that's just the way that it is. And so I think I grappled with, I guess, this kind of ever changing, um, my my kind of ever changing ethnic background based on the different places that I lived, and it's sort of, I think, sometimes it's given me this sort of uncomfortably contextual understanding of race. You know, people we human beings want, they want to belong, right? They want to feel like they're a part of a group. And one of the reasons that we have these labels and that we have these words is because they give us a sense of belonging. Like if you can say, you know, I'm, I'm black and I'm part of the black community and like black culture is X or whatever. And it's the same, you know, South Asian, whatever. Like these are labels that we use in order to feel that we can belong or that we have, we are part of a group. Um, but the fact is that when you move around the world, those groups change. Like you were talking about, you know, the brownness is like a potential separate racial category in Jamaica. Um, and I have a feel, I, I sometimes feel that not all people are necessarily aware or open of that kind of, open to that kind of, um, to, to that change. People have a really fixed sense of what race is because they think that race is biological and we know that it's not. It's a construct. It's something that we've literally made up. So I think this conversation is super interesting. Like if you think about South Africa, like South Africa is another really good example where you have blacks and whites and colored people and it's like a, a whole other, Category with a with a whole other history. Um, so I just I find it really interesting to to learn and to read about all of these different types of groups and different types of contexts. And I think that we need to sometimes in the conversations that we have about race. Obviously, you can't always include every single context in every single conversation. But I think sometimes we need to like broaden our understanding of what these words can mean in different contexts. Oh, so um, just one really quick thing that I wanted to say, and then I had a question for Alex. Um, so I was thinking about the, the, the question Alex posed to us as relates to um, how our skin color attributes certain privileges to us. I think for me also, part of the reason was that because like I didn't, I guess, realize the privilege outside of the dating scene because, or I didn't, because I felt like it, my level of femininity or queerness kind of stripped me of those privileges again. Like, so for example, yes, I might have been somewhat fairer skinned back then but because i was flamboyant then it didn't it felt like it just didn't matter um at that point but you also said something about navigating communities and i was wondering how has those perceptions that you've heard of um like people well others perception of you whether or not you are black or brown or whatever they however they chose to define um your racial makeup did that influence how you how you um 
navigate certain spaces in search of this belongingness or in search of community? Or rather, how okay. did it impact or influence the way you navigated these spaces? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think if you, when you look into, and I, I'm starting to generalize here because the thing about being mixed race as a, you know, as a racial category is that it's a very personal experience. And because, because race and labels around race are very contextual, there are a lot of people who feel, you know, a certain way about being mixed race. And there are people who feel a completely different way. And there's no, it's not monolithic, right? It's very varied. But one of the things that I hear a lot of mixed race people um, express is this constant, this sense of, this sense of always negotiating and always balancing and kind of being in this tug of war. You know, for me as a adult millennial, I, you know, when I came to this country, I was really excited because I felt like there was a really vibrant, and I'm talking now about like the queer community, but I felt like there was a really vibrant queer South Asian community. And there is because South Asian people are uh, a large ethnic minority, just like black people are in this country. So um, I was super excited to get involved in that, but I was reacquainted with this uncomfortable feeling as soon as I kind of got involved in events and went to, you know, queer South Asian parties or whatever that, you know, when you're mixed race, you still don't fully belong, right? There, you know, people, people are like, oh, okay, yeah, you're sort of one of us, but you're not quite one of us. Like, you don't quite get the same references, you know, you know, the, uh, people that have two South Asian parents, they might have had a stronger, you know, presence of South Asian culture in their home. And like, for, for me, as with having one South Asian parent, it might be slightly different. And so there's a sense of like, you never really find a space to belong. And then obviously, like, if you're half white, like me, you know, I don't, I mean, <laughs> despite what Glenroy <laughs> may have thought coming into the UK and seeing me, like, I don't fit into white communities. Like, people don't read me as white in this country, ever, right? And so implicitly just by my melanin and just by you know looking the way that I look I also don't fit into that kind of quote-unquote community either so I think for a lot of people it's this sense of just not ever really quite having the chance to fully belong and grappling with that and I think for me and I this is what I advise people who are dealing with these kinds of like lack of belonging issues it's about accepting that it's okay to not have that right it's okay to be caught in between or stuck in between and that there's kind of beauty to that experience as well and that you don't always have to try and uh it's it sounds sad but like you don't always have to try and find your kind of ethnic community you don't always have to belong so I don't know if that fully answered your question but that was just kind of what came to me in the moment <laughs> thank you thank you so um through that conversation and a little bit before you brought up something that I thought I mean I was wondering do we talk about this here? But I think we do, um, even though it has implications for other conversations about being a part of a diaspora. But also, one of my most distinct um, experiences once I was living and studying in the UK was that in Jamaica, the, what made me other primarily was my queerness. In the UK, what made me other primarily was my blackness. Um, because then I, I had to learn what the, the term BAME mean, which is black, Asian, and other... Um, what? Minority ethnic groups, I think that's what I mean, right? Yes. That's it, that's it. <laughs> right. Black and But yeah, that became a reality for me and that, that never used to be a thing. And so this notion of you like you're shifting identities and shifting dynamics, I would love to hear for um, both from Kareem and Cornell who would have moved and have lived in like outside of Jamaica for such a long time. What was that experience like? And then we can get into Alex's conversation about being in... Um, the LGBT community specifically, but what was that experience like moving and then becoming a black person essentially and having to find yourself in that experience and then find yourself as a black queer person 
within that experience. Sorry, if I could just really quickly, um, I know we've, we've moved on to this, but to go back to uh, something that both Alex and Kareem were talking about, and you, Glenn, in terms of definitions of brownness and blackness and how that changes depending on where we are, I also want to recognize that that is also tied to all how we understand notions of whiteness based on where we are as well. I remember there was this guy that I went to school with in high school who would be considered fair skin, you know, high browning, whatever in Jamaica. But he found like he went to the, the US at one point and he was very shocked to be treated like a black person. Um, like he, he didn't ex- expect to and I mean, you know, we can talk about like what that meant in terms of politics and self-awareness. But when I moved to Canada, and then I'll go into answering your, your, your question, um, I had, so I, I met other students who were like in, Indigenous students, and I read them as being white, and they were like, no, like I'm not white, I'm Indigenous. And then in Canada, there's also these nuances in terms of, you know, you know someone isn't white, they're Italian versus Algerian versus not white versus being Jewish. So it's, it's interesting how even at the level of, you know, notions of whiteness, it becomes that kind of um, nuance or complicated. To answer your question, though, about becoming aware of my blackness. So I, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, I went, my undergrad was at a university in a small university town where the majority of the population was white, relatively rural. Um, Many of the students that I went to school with had never met a Black person before. And so one of the interesting things was for many of those students, they assumed that every Black person at the school, whether or not they were born and grew up in Canada, did not come from Canada. And so they assumed everyone was international. But that was also interesting because among the Black students who grew up in places like Toronto, they would be like, oh, like, where in Toronto are you from? And so they approached the question differently. So, I mean, my kind of immigration status was read differently based on where I, I was, I guess. Uh, the queerness piece is interesting because I was not, I was never assumed to be, that the possibility of me being a queer person wasn't, didn't seem to be on the table. And so that required, you know, a different kind of work and energy in being like, oh, you know, you know, I'm not interested in this or I'm not, you know, doing that um, for these particular reasons. Because I think for a lot of the people I went to school with anyway, the idea of someone being Black and queer wasn't a thing that computed in, in their mind. And it was only when I uh, moved to Toronto that I got a better sense of community in, in that respect. But uh, I mean, I think I've also said this on, on the podcast before, that part of my difficulty too in moving to Canada was as a res- based on where I was in terms of being with my own sexuality and, you know, feelings about Jamaica, I was like trying not to hang around Jamaican people or Black people generally at the time, because in my mind, Black communities are created with homophobia. So that's also something I had to work through. Marine? I think for um for me, it, Blackness and queerness play like different roles and had like different effects. So when I went into predominantly white queer spaces, I think my experience like with my Blackness, I was fetishized a lot because of course of all the stereotypes that go with Blackness. And then I was Jamaican. Well, I, well, I am Jamaican. So the moment people hear that, then we know they are automatically assume this whole big dick narrative and blah, 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 right? So from that perspective, that's how I, um, I guess, experienced that. But in the Black community, I think it was my queerness that kind of, and I say queerness because I'm, I'm talking about like my le- level of femininity or level of outness that that preceded me. And so people like, even within the queer community, the black queer community, 
I was shunned to an extent because nobody wants to be seen. I'm like, essentially, I'm going to be telling on you if you're seen in public with me. And that impacted a lot of people who, like, even though I went to one of the most diverse campuses, it was still a thing because among Black students, um, it took a while because it's like, oh, wait, we, like, you're not, you, like Cornell said, like a Black queer person is almost taboo or it's not supposed to be. But then eventually they warmed up because, I, I don't know, they got to know me more than who I, more than, like, they stopped past my queerness. Um, but yeah, I think that's how my Blackness and my queerness kind of impacted me in those spaces. As I tried to, like, navigate and form communities, it it's always like I had to choose. It's almost like I had to choose one or the other, if that makes sense. Because, I, go ahead. No, I was saying I completely understand that. Yeah, it felt like I had to choose, like, one over the other in order to kind of gain some level of acceptance. And that's why I had posed the question to Alex as to, like, how that kind of influenced the way he navigated spaces trying to find some level of um, belonging. I mean to kind of jump on that quickly. So like for me, I remember that what was most important to me while I was living in the UK was Bootylicious. And I know it kind of sounds like, oh, a party. But as a, as a Jamaican who my queerness and my Jamaicanness, I left Jamaica with those two very wrapped up together. And so how I, I never felt like I was me a real old, like I was in a Jamaican, you know, feel like me a real old at me a dash show, which is how we, exp- a lot of us, for a lot of us, we express our queerness. I mean, I feel like me a fully express my queerness when me down heaven, which is a predominantly white club. And a little cute little urban section, big it up, is not enough for me. Then play Spice one time, me did it. It's not enough. So for me specifically, I had to go to a space that was dedicated to black queer people and therefore that meant because um the uk had a mass as a massive jamaican diaspora that at the very least i would have had an experience that catered to my blackness my queerness my jamaicanness um and so therefore finding community was much harder so here i was in this city that's that is very um by all measures uh, much more open and accepting of queerness but i but i'm also a queer black person and i'm also a queer jamaican and so actually finding that, that, that specific strand what became very difficult. And once I found it, I, I clung to it. So I'm wondering for Alex and for the, uh, you two as well, what that experience was like. Because I know Alex, you started talking about going into queer South Asian spaces, but was there like a space that you found that you said, okay, I'm going to have to hold on to this for dear life because this is me. Yeah, I think that space for me was UK Black Pride. So... Just for context, the listeners, UK Black Pride is, it's a pride celebration which happens right after London Pride. And it's for the entirety of the UK. And it's, although it's called UK Black Pride, it's for any person of color. So it's, you know, like, it's like black people, Asian people, uh, Latinx people, like it's, it's the whole, it's the whole gamut of like non-white uh, queer people who are supposed to be accommodated. And for me, I mean, it's so interesting as well to hear Kareem and Cornell um, and Glenroy, all of your experiences, because I don't know, I think I, I think, I think what, what your experiences speak to is for me, the importance of this terminology around queer people of color. I think the term people of color, you know, it's not always, it doesn't endear itself to a lot of people because it feels like it's a, it's a weirdly generalist term and it's trying to reduce a lot of complexity and a lot of like different labels into one. But I think for me, spaces like UK Black Pride, which are spaces which broadly accommodate queer people of colour, not only do you feel like you belong and you feel like you're among people that understand you on some level, but it also reminds you that like I'm not black, right? I'm not Jamaican and 
um, you know, my experience of going to Bootylicious would have been very different because I wouldn't have felt that sense of belonging that you did. But understanding that you as a queer Jamaican black immigrant and me as a uh, queer half South Asian, half white Australian immigrant have more in common in terms of our experiences of navigating white spaces and our, our sense of, you know, how jarring it can be to navigate those white spaces when they're not accommodated or, and they weren't created for you. It, I think I find, I find it really important that we have these like cross-cultural conversations and realize that there's more that's in common than there is apart. And that's why I'm such a big fan of, I think like everyone needs to have their celebrations, right? You need to have like, for me, it's always been these like South Asian, like, like, you know, listening to Bhangra music, like Bollywood type music and like dancing, like, like a, like a kind of idiot <laughs> um, into the night. But one of the things that I've really appreciated about the terminology around queer people of color in spaces like UK Black Pride is that it's given me access to and permission to respectfully explore other kind of queer, non-white, kind of, I guess like subcultures. You know, I went to a um, I went to a club night with a friend of mine um, who is a black gay man who's from Sierra Leone, and we went to this um, this club night here in London where it was all like Afro beats and like music that I don't normally listen to. And I knew that because broadly speaking, there is this understanding or it's like there's a, a general kind of sense of I th- I think kind of conviviality and community amongst non-white queer people in this country that I could enter that space, appreciate the culture, not necessarily like get it like it wasn't necessarily my music but just enjoy it and be able to like celebrate somebody else's difference and I just think that is so it's so powerful and it's so important um and it's something that I feel very lucky to have here in London and I appreciate that it's not something which actually exists in many parts of the world um so yeah I just I have a quick question because Alex you just reminded me of something that I've come across in some of my classes so apparently there is a rich, long-standing history in the UK where people understand or communities understand these notions of blackness a bit more broadly when it comes to political organizing. And so one of the stuff that's come up in class is this or or the, the idea of political blacks. Uh, yeah, yeah, like it, it doesn't just include you know people who are of quote unquote like African descent, but also holds space for um, people who are let's say. Um, South Asian, East Asian, and, and and so forth as a kind of like political strategy. And so I'm wondering, you know, how, to what extent that might be useful in terms of cultivating some, or a kind of better queer community, um, not only in, 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 the K, in the UK, but generally speaking. One of the other things that I was thinking about, though, because Vinod was talking about this idea of, I don't want to say reconciling Blackness and, and, and queerness, but finding something that that, that, that caters to both aspects, but I'm also wondering if our queerness has given us access or to forms of inclusion that might have been denied to us if we were, quote unquote, like, you know, traditionally uh, cis, hetero, Black men. Because I'm also wondering, because I mean, even to Karima's point, like, there's a way that Black men are seen as, or read as being criminal or treated as, or criminalized in, in particular kinds of ways. But there is a way that visible femininity softens us to the people that we might deal with to be like, okay, we aren't actually threatening to you. And so that might um, give us more room to be invited into certain kinds of like spaces or conversations. Is that a thing that happens in your experience at all? Or Well, 
well, to kind of respond. Um, so for me, I would like to, I'd rather kind of frame it as because of that shared sense of oppression and exclusion from, so oppression, queer oppression, but also exclusion from white queer spaces, like what Alex talks about. We understand the importance of catered spaces and understand that we must give each member, different people within, the, within our communities, the opportunity to feel that feel those intersections come together. And so we can respectfully partake in it because we understand that the spaces are fleeting. And I think that's what gives us the benefit of those kind of shared spaces, as opposed to the kind of, well, I'm a black man, but I'm not that black man uh, that comes with somehow we're read sometimes as queer black man, men. And so if the basis on which you're including me is the latter and not the former, I don't want to be in it. I'd rather you see me as that black man personally because there's that kind of, uh, it's racialized is what I'm saying. So, I mean, I think the kind of, uh, I understand that you need the space too is a better way to kind of, and I think it's probably more closer to how we get to kind of have those shared um, experiences as people of color who are also queer. Because, and let me just go my, my soapbox just for five seconds. I am <laughs> tired of being in queer spaces of color where white gay men, choose this opportunity to take center stage. It is rude and disrespectful, and I don't think they understand how problematic it, it, they, um, it is. I get that you're in this space. I get that you get, you're getting to hear music that you probably do enjoy, but don't always have the benefit of enjoying because white, white queer spaces don't often play the kind of music that, you know, white people do listen to outside of the, the kind of um, techno stuff that often is played in, in, in queer clubs. But... You have to also understand, plain and simple, that the space was catered to a set of people who don't have the benefit of taking center stage. You can legit go to the white gay club and take center stage. So I think you must understand, because even when Afrobeats are playing, I'm not going to take center stage, because I understand that I will enjoy the Afrobeats in Amaluka Kana and, and move. If I'm in Trinidad, if Soka play, I'm Caribbean, so yes, I'll enjoy Soka. But I'm going to Trinidad in the front, I'm going behind them, I'll walk up and I'll go on. Like, I don't get why, why white gay men cannot get it in their heads that sometimes it is okay and appropriate to stand on the sidelines and enjoy it from the sidelines. They always feel the need to take up space. And it used to be, it, it has been the most grating thing for me, being in black queer spaces and watching them, just not having, not reading the room and understanding, my girl, I know your time. I mean, I mean, I get it. I totally agree, but it's because they've never had to read the room before, right? And this is what I mean about, and this is, a, I, I guess I'm reiterating the point, it's like, you know, you as a queer black man, me as a queer mixed race, South Asian man, like we've had to read, the, like we have to be hyper aware of the way that we are viewed and the way that we are read in queer spaces, right? We have that as our default. If, you, if you're like me and you live in the UK where it's sort of a white majority society, I know going into the vast majority of quote unquote mainstream queer spaces that I'm being, I'm being judged or I'm being read as, as, as other and as different. And if you're a white gay man, you in the UK, you know, you've never done that before because you go to these spaces and you're like, oh, this is my space. These are all my spaces because I'm gay and this is a gay club and yada, yada, yada. So I think I agree with you 100%. It's extremely aggravating. But I also, and it's not to be an apologist, but I also, unless, unless someone has gone out of their way to, or, or has, you know, like people of color in their life or whatever, they're just not going to do it. And that's what's so, and particularly when I think queer black culture currently in this in 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 the queer community like more broadly across the world you know when things like paris is burning and and 
pose and like queer black culture has now been appropriated into the into the white queer mainstream it's almost even more aggravating because it's like not only do they take up the space but they take up the space and they use the words that come from your community they use the you know they they act like they're they, they do things and they have behavior which is like appropriated from your community so it's even more aggravating <laughs> Thanks for understanding. No, Cornel, your question. Wait, wait, I just want to. I just want to clarify my my point um, because I think we we ended up talking. I wasn't talking about um, queer spaces in particular. So if if I'll reframe, we were talking earlier about how um, skin complexion, uh, race, um, degrees of blackness, brownness, whiteness um, affords us a certain kind of currency. My question was about the extent to which being queer or being red as queer affords a certain kind of currency in our kind of like day-to-day existence based on the different kind of institutions or um, I don't know places or like things that we ha- might, might have to do regularly and what I was trying to say was uh, there might be situations where you know let's say anti-blackness or racism that might prevent you know most black men from accessing particular um, not services but like Sure, services, resources, interactions, whatever, whatever the case may be, because black men usually are read as being more um, aggressive, as being threatening, you know, whatever. I'm wondering if, in some cases, being read as queer because of whatever popular conception they are about queer people, it softens the kind of general image that people might have. Um, is what I'm trying to like trying to figure out. So that that's and it's not just about like queer communities, but I'm just and I'm trying to think of like a useful. Example. I, get I mean, any, yeah. Go ahead. So, um, so for me, I feel like as a queer advocate, because I'm a queer advocate, you know, I get that space of with other queer advocates to kind of share, and I'm not therefore read as a random black man on the street, especially because I wear capes everywhere and I wear heels. So, it, so you're right. The kind of threatening stereotype that's attached to the traditional masculine black man, I do not have. So, I, I get where you're going with it. But what I use that opportunity to do, to always do, is to talk about racism and colonialism, period. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Because, you, because you don't necessarily see me as threatening, I'm going to remind you that I'm black. So I get it, but I definitely always leverage those kinds of opportunities to have that race conversation. Because oftentimes, it just never comes up unless you do. Right. So Kareem, has this ever happened to you? Or is this something that you've ever had to deal with? I mean, I've been trying to think about in ways, again, maybe I'm just not keen to it, but the only thing that actually comes to mind, honestly, is when I'm around, and this has not, this like not an institution or anything, but just like when I'm around um, females, right? And there's this, like Guillermo I said, like you're, you're, you're less threatening. Um, and so you kind of get away with more with these females. So for example, I could remember, um, I forgot what had happened with some female. And I was like, hey, boo. And I compliment her outfit or some body. I compliment her body part. And he brought it to my attention that if he had done that, then it would have been a completely, like her reaction would not have been the same. Like it would have been so much more like sharp and pointed as opposed to her just looking back and going, hey, sis. So I think um, in that sense, then maybe that's a privilege. I'm not quite sure. Or maybe that's just a double standard. But I'm not, nothing comes to mind right now as it relates to, like, when you think about institutions and being able to penetrate spaces. Well, you you actually reminded me of something, and this is helped by something Alex said earlier about um, being in the club. So 
Albert, who was on uh, a previous episode, he he he's always annoyed. Well, not, I don't know if he, I don't know if annoyed is is the word, but he's always surprised. Um, sometimes when he goes to the clubs, because uh, uh, gay men uh, usually some of, usually the, the the drag queens would be calling you know women in the club bitches and engaging in all sorts of like what would other otherwise be considered to be like quite vulgar behavior but it's somehow seen as being okay um and not like violent or abusive because a man in a dress is 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 saying it i guess but like if it if that was not the case it might be interpreted differently um yeah so that was just something that popped into into my head but yeah yep i think i think that's a super interesting discussion actually because i think i've had i remember i was it i think i posted like something on instagram this is years ago um, where I use the word bitch and I was talking like, I think I was talking about another gay man or something, but it was like a joking, silly kind of, I was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And a friend of mine who's a feminist, like a kind of um, really an admirable and amazing um, sort of feminist writer and critic, she messaged me and she was like, can I just ask you, like, I feel, I felt really strange with you using this word because it's a word that like for, for women and for, for me, like has a real sting to it and seeing you kind of appropriate that word, but in a way which felt kind of congenial, almost like familial, like friendly was really jarring. And can we talk about it? And we had a really fascinating discussion where we were basically trying to place, you know, obviously men are men. There's a lot of misogyny within the gay community and being gay does not inoculate you or immunize you from, from being misogynistic or having, um, you know, engaging in, in thoughts or in behavior that is anti-women. Um, but we do exist in this really interesting middle space because so many of us are feminine or read as feminine. Um, and a lot of us find power in femininity and sort of co-opt femininity to, to sort of like, I guess, subvert um, the idea of what it means to be a man. And it's it just gets really complicated because it's so hard. It's, I don't even know if I'm, if I can properly explain it. Right. But it's just, I was just so interested to hear you make that point Cornell. Cause I think it's so true. I think gay men get away with a lot that we wouldn't if we weren't, if we didn't embrace femininity. And that, I think that's a really interesting topic. You need to get a guest on who's an, who's, a, who's an expert on this because I honestly think that would be such an interesting topic to talk about. Yeah. It's um, so for me, I'm actually really guarded because so so it's this thing that we do in the gay community where because in a way we kind of make woman the standard as opposed to in the hetero community um where we make man the standard well in our language not necessarily in how we talk about experiences and how we do political work but like we like in jamaica we'll say the pencil she or we use she to refer to she to refer to he to refer to an object right so we generalize the, the feminine article a lot and so the, that, the word bitch becomes, it's a word we use between each other as gay men a lot of times. And it, it's said with the kinds of um, familiarity that women do with each other at times. And so, and we gay men have been called bitches, whether by straight men or other men, um, at different points in time in a kind of disempowering way. So the, it becomes a question of, to what extent are we even capable of reclaiming this word? Is it always a word that is used to denigrate women and only women and so we're not capable of reclaiming it? So those are the kinds of things that I think about. But what I've always personally been watchful of is never using that word with um, women unless they're my really close friends who I have kind of 
through conversation, we've, we use it with each other and it's fine. But, um, but I try outside of those kind of really closely to interpersonal spaces to not use the word um, in general conversation about general issues. But maybe me and Suela talk or maybe me and Rain talk. And so we can use that word back and forth, uh, but never or just use, use it as like a, an exclamation point, like, bitch. But like outside of that, to kind of, I'm very watchful of it because of the misogyny in the gay community, especially the Jamaican gay community. We have some really misogynistic values and femphobic values that we need to work through. And so I'm, I'm particularly watchful of how I, as a gay man, um, kind of engages in, in, in language and behaviors that can be misogynistic. But it, it's definitely an interesting reality and conversation about how our gayness allows us to have certain kind of relationships with women because it's, like, I can make certain jokes with my female friends about, um, for example, I always tease Suel that about, you know, for wanting to do certain things for scientific purposes, but, you know, we're friends and we get to make those jokes. And if I was... <laughs> right, right. But if I was to say it would definitely not be read as that. It would, would be read as creepy. But I, because I'm very mindful of that, I, I also kind of play up my queerness as well to kind of reinforce the kind of non-threatening energy in the kind of sexual sense, but also be mindful that I'm also still not allowed to say certain things and there's a limit to how far I can go. But you're right, it's very delicate, it's very intricate and complicated and something that I think all gay men should be watchful for when we talk to and with women um, and about women because we're still men and we're still capable of adopting and furthering um, misogyny. Totally. Right. So um, I know we're running short on time, but there's just one conversation that I did want us to have briefly, um, which is that first point, which is because we come from all, well, oh, let me not say that because then my friend comes from Australia, but because of our understandings of LGBT realities across the globe. We know that countries in the global south get a bad rep, um, especially about notions of where is homo where's more homophobic than the other. And I would just love to kind of hear, especially for all of us who've lived in different spaces, um, your kind of experience of that um, as a person of color who, because of where you come from, they were like, oh, that's, this is very homophobic. Like, how do you live there? You must be grateful to be in the UK, for example. And I was like, actually... <laughs> I'm, I'm much more happy living in Jamaica, I, I, to be quite honest. I have access to my food, to my culture, to my language, and there's a, and a good amount of people who love and support me versus here, where I'm black first. And um, yeah, there's that. And, and, and therefore, I have to navigate a new set of experiences. But yeah, let's talk about that. Um, the notions that these homophobic spaces make a certain, other, certain other countries a space that we people of color would want to flock to and run to. Okay, so I think what really frustrates me about this conversation i mean look at the end of the day i i was born in australia and i, and I live in the uk so broadly speaking i'm from the global north and i live in the global north um but i happen to be a person of color what frustrates me about this conversation is i guess the lack of education and accountability um when it comes to largely white queer people in both of the countries that i've kind of grown up in and, and i'm from i guess um because and i mean God, we, were, we were kind of I, I was this is kind of slightly tangential but I was um, I put a series of tweets out recently regarding for those of you who have wait am I going to do like a drag race spoiler like has everyone seen everyone who watches drag race seen the most recent drag race episode mm-hmm I have okay scream no, no, no. Ah! okay so I, in very 
<laughs> in very broad terms, there is a queen who wears, who is uh, Iranian, who wears um, a hijab, and she, and it's a stars and stripes runway. So she wears it like kind of an American flag hijab, basically. Um, and one of the guest judges kind of makes this comment, which I think basically infers that Islam is a, a religion which is fundamentally homophobic. Um, and and anti-woman. And anti-women, you're absolutely right, Cornell. Um, and it really annoyed me for a variety of reasons, but we won't go into all of them because we're sort of talking about a very specific thing here. But it just showed to me as well that the perception of homophobia or you know LGBT phobia around the world by the West is a more dominant narrative than the actual facts of what is happening in terms of LGBT discrimination around the world. So for those of us who work in this field, we know that the majority of countries that continue to criminalize homosexuality do so directly because of the influence of colonial era laws given to them largely by Britain, right? That's the case in Jamaica, right? And yet somehow, well, not somehow, we know how, <laughs> because it's politically expedient. Whenever we talk about homophobia, homophobia abroad, it's often tied up in the Middle East. It's often about, oh, in Iran or Iraq or in Syria or in Jordan or in Yemen or, or, just, or just Muslim countries like Malaysia or Brunei or Nigeria. Um, and it made me, it, it really annoyed me because I think, of course, you know, there's really horrific um, homophobic discrimination happening in those countries and transphobic discrimination. But it's just, it's more, there is a mismatch between the reality around the world and what people kind of think. And I think it's really interesting as well because Jamaica, um, and I didn't know this until I moved to the UK because this was not a narrative that was prevailing or dominant in Australia whatsoever. But in the UK, there is this really strong sense, and I've heard it time and time and time again, and Zenra, you'll know this, that Jamaica is a very difficult place to be gay, right? And it's for some reason that it stands out as a country. People are like, oh yeah, but in Jamaica, it's really, really, really tough. And I know I've spoken to Glenmore before about this. It's so it's so it's so frustrating, right? When queer Jamaican activists are trying to talk about, you know, the the community and what's happening in Jamaica and like the steps that are being taken and all the amazing work that's happening, and people in the UK are like, oh yeah, but it's just it's so awful here. It's so hard um, because it's also like, well, first of all, yes, it is hard, but there's also amazing things happening. But secondly, the reason it's hard is because your ancestors made it hard you know and so that could be such a jarring experience and such a jarring feeling for people to kind of like look down on the place that you're from or look down on these countries when when you know the reason that these countries are homophobic in the first place is down to actions that were taken by their ancestors and so i find this conversation so frustrating to have sometimes with white people who i guess are just misinformed and don't know their history um but i'm really interested to hear kareem and cornell your experiences of being in the us and canada around this Oh my goodness. Okay, so I feel like you gave me so much to think about that I want to talk <laughs> about, but I, I probably won't be able to remember everything. But I also have lots of thoughts about the that episode as well. But we, I mean, we, we can have that conversation otherwise. Uh, the it is, in, it is interesting that Jamaica is often singled out as the kind of prime singular example of homophobia in the global south. And one of the things that um, I've come across in some of the work that I've done is that even within the Caribbean, Jamaica is in some ways used as the, the scapegoat to be like, oh, you know, this happened to members of the LGBTQ plus community 
in this particular animation, but we aren't as bad because Jamaica is, is much worse. So it, it's really interesting how that happens. What doesn't get talked about often enough is the fact that, you know, I don't think, okay, so it's not useful to deny that homophobia is a thing in Jamaica because it exists, but what doesn't get included in the conversation is how um, these kind of like spectacular moments of uh, homophobic violence are tied up with other things. And that's, I imagine, is one of the, the things that uh, Glenn Roy and people that he works with are trying to, to, to showcase. So it's not just about, you know, people hating, you know, other well, hating gay people generally, but these are also about questions of uh, access to to resources and poverty and housing and um, some things may 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 be personal. And I think the what is omitted again is this broader narrative of how again to your point about how we set up into you know colonial history. So we can have the narrative of Jamaica being the most homophobic country on earth and that fits into a general narrative because in Toronto some years back um, they sent um, so politicians apparently I think it was like members of the police force or whatever down to Jamaica to understand um, why to understand the crime in Toronto because the idea was that like crime in Toronto was driven by like Jamaican immigrants and so the point I'm trying to make is that like the it's part of a broader narrative about how uh, a group of people are positioned and illustrated, described as being backward um, and 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 savage. That isn't just a, about the the homophobic piece, generally speaking. What I'll say about the the context in Canada is, well, one of the things I always ask people is that like, okay, sure, these things happen in other countries, but people are also ignoring the acts of violence that happen within their own communities, right? So like the, the idea that I mean, Canada in particular is described on the in on the international stage as the safe haven for LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus peoples. Um, but homophobia is still very real here, but no one necessarily wants to, to talk about that. But I'm also feeling, I'm also conflicted sometimes because particularly when it comes to like asylum applications, because on one hand it depends on these really um, exceptional uh, negative narratives of countries like Jamaica and others in the Caribbean but I also want to like hold space for people who are enduring hardship and need these really horrible narratives in order to, to like move somewhere else. So, I mean, that's also complex for other reasons, but um, I agree with pretty much everything that you've said. Dear queer white people, well, no, come off a Jamaica name. <laughs> um, so, I mean, when I first got that whole, when you would hear those narratives about Jamaica being so homophobic and the worst place to be gay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not gonna lie, at one point, when, well, when I just moved here and I was telling my story, it was almost like a badge of honor, like, oh, damn, I survived Jamaica, oh yeah, I got out, or I was lucky, I was fortunate. But, um, I mean, as I continue to establish roots here, it's, and you've realized like how many other elements you have to um, interface and navigate in order to be successful, in order to do what you want to do. It's like, it can, for me, it kind of weakens that narrative of Jamaica being the worst place to grow up and be gay, yada, yada. Because it's like, okay, in Jamaica, I was gay, sure. Um, and sure, I'm Black. But for me, I didn't really feel the impact of my Blackness then. I tell people all the time, when I came here is when I really, truly learned what it is to be Black. Um, because that I, you're Black, you're an immigrant, you're queer. Top of that, you're a flamboyant. Like, it's just all these other things that you constantly have to navigate and establish legitimacy um, whenever they kind of like rear their head or people, somebody finds the need to point it out. So for me, I mean, that, that 
argument of Jamaica being like the worst place to be gay has kind of like weakened because I feel like if that's the only thing that I'm fighting against or I'm working against, that's working against me in Jamaica, I'd still be living a much more fruitful life, well, prosperous life, if that makes sense. I mean, because right now, it's still so many other elements that I have to navigate once I get beyond that my education won't be able to compensate for, that my queerness, that my blackness, that any of my identities, identities won't be able to compensate for. I still have to, I feel like I still have to establish some amount of illegitimacy regardless. So now we have this urban leg of nine months, and then, you know, we can move forward and maybe conclude this. You know how she feel about her Jamaica, honey. Listen, because I mean, I've said it multiple times. The reality is there's this white savior complex which is embedded in racism. And that white savior complex will always present us, whether we were savages that they needed to convert to Christianity, which was the, the historical language that was used to appropriate land and, and move people of, of color off of their land and use their resources. Now the narrative is, y'all are still savages and we need to save you from yourselves because y'all are homophobic and you're the worst kids on earth. When, when in reality, black trans women and other trans women of color are still being murdered widespread in America. I was equally shocked to find out, I do not remember the exact numbers from the Stonewall report, but at, at least one of them either said that 60% of queer people in the UK were afraid of walking around and holding their partner's hands, or, um, or at least, or, the, or it could have been 60% of them would have faced discrimination at least one point in their life. So all of this narrative about global South countries come from a space of ignoring the realities faced by queer people in a lot of global North territories. While I was in the UK, I remember the story of the lesbian couple that were, that were attacked by a group yeah. of young men while they were, on, they were on their way home on the bus and they, they beat them. Um, and one of them had a bloody nose or something. So homophobia exists and is real all across the world. Does Jamaica have problems? Of course we do. Do we have legal barriers and gaps? Of course we do. Um, do does our culture have problems in them that, to be, that need to be fixed? Yes. But we do not have to be a land of savages for you to help us, for you to support us, and for you to say, yes, there's problems, but they can be fixed. You do not need to help Jamaica, and you do not need to grant people asylum because where they come from is a land of savages. We can remove, we can get away from that narrative. And so it bothers me because the only way you can sell this narrative is by ignoring what is exactly happening in your background. I just read a report saying that in Hungary, there, there, there's, a, there's a move there to roll back laws that yeah. um, allow for the legal registration of change, change of gender. And then we can also think about the fact that as soon as Trump went into office, there were all these changes that negatively affected the LGBT community, including treatment of people um, of, of trans, the kind of treatment of trans people were in the army. Granted, men are there for the militarism, but the point is, if nowhere, if nowhere, if nothing else proves something, laws and advances in law and policy can be undone. And so to assume that the problems in my country are the worst ever, and that you can compare yourself to my country, well, my research shows me that we're upwards on the homophobia bit, that we're slowly changing minds and hearts over a longer period of time, yes, but that it is happening. And that I come from a post-colonial society that was ravaged by colonialism and slavery that are still working through its own identity and its own relationship to religion. And we will get there. And that we really can't be the standard. 
because you're much better off than us economically. And if you're much better off than us economically, you should be doing better on principle because you don't have the kinds of challenges that our people have with homelessness and poverty generally. But here you are, queer people still being afraid to be visibly queer. You know how many, listen, and this is my last point. While I was in the UK, there were many black gay men and black queer men in the UK that were still very much, that acted like Jamaicans. Meaning that, 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 like a lot of Jamaican men, meaning they were still very much afraid while living in the UK to be visibly or to be known as queer. For I was more out than many black gay men that I met in the UK. Granted, I'm an exception, but there are many queer people in Jamaica that are more out than queer people in the UK and in other countries. So it's way more nuanced and it's way more complicated and we need to remove ourselves from this, this, this dangerous dichotomy that will always present one as a savior to the other and recognize that we all have, there are different ways in which homophobia manifests in different countries and we can learn from each other by sitting down and talking about different strategies to get through it, right? It doesn't have to be the white people helping us and saving us. There's a lot white people can learn about the ways in which we address homophobia in Jamaica and we therefore create different opportunities for integration so that when our policies come on board, however long they take, they are not going to get rolled back because we've had a diversity policy by the JCF for almost 10 years now and there's been no attempt to roll it back, none. So even, it might not be the best implemented policy, but no, attempt, no politician has gotten on a platform and said, we need to roll back that policy that says police shouldn't discriminate. So there are lessons to learn across the board. And it that was, I, sorry, I, I 100% agree. Like that was, I wish I could, I mean, I'm going to send everyone this episode <laughs> because that you just perfectly distilled the problem. Just because you did it first, it doesn't mean you did it the best. You know what I mean? Just because Europe got there first doesn't mean that the way that Europe has approached this is somehow automatically the blueprint that every other country should take. Oh, Glenroy, I've been nodding so vigorously that my neck hurts. <laughs> All right, my dog, no, I'm going to feel like I just took a long time to go off another episode. So my dog, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, this has definitely been a very riveting, um, somewhat heated, maybe emotional discussion on race and queerness and how that has impacted us and influenced how we navigate certain spaces, both at home and in diaspora. As usual, to our faithful listeners, this is a fish to catch. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really do hope that you were inspired, that something said here that was done here would, I don't know, inspire some thought for you to act or to continue these conversations elsewhere in your own spheres of influence. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, and send us your comments on, at, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Fish Tea Podcast, or to your Gmail at fishtpodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe, be well, and as Glenn Warren normally says, wipe it down before putting it in your mouth. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for spending your, your afternoon with us. Um, or is it night? Well, (laughs) (laughs) so y'all signing off, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye.